Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. For our first episode, we wanted to take you on a tour through radically different ends of the food system. We'll begin by speaking with two farmers growing vegetables for CSAs in schools with an eye towards building autonomy and power. After that, however, we speak with someone working in a hyper-exploitative grocery store in an impoverished neighborhood in Connecticut. The fact that our interviewee can open up space for covert mutual aid and sharing, even in this corporate environment, speaks to the potential of the undercommons. In our first segment, we speak with Sarah and Meg, two women who farm in upstate New York, about three hours from the city. We spoke in the spring just as the coronavirus pandemic was hitting the country. They tell us about their farm and their daily and seasonal rhythms, and how COVID-19 has affected their work in food production. Here they are. I'm Sarah. And I'm Meg. And we are both farmers at the Abode Farm. So our farm's in upstate New York. We're about three hours north of New York City and um, three hours west of Boston. So we are not currently like owners on the farm. There are um, two owners who started it eight seasons ago now, or is this the ninth? Going into the ninth season. And this will be my third season on the farm and Meg's fourth. Currently we're farming on about eight acres and we have a diversified vegetable production and there's about five of us who are farming mostly full-time um, and we have some extra help in the height of the summer as well. And our primary outlets, um, we have a pretty big CSA, varies from about like 60 to 90 members and this year I think we will be over 100 and then we also do farmers markets and wholesale to different restaurants and our primary sales are in our region. And then we do a few sales in New York City in the winter because we do a lot of winter storage crops too. And we also sell to some community institutions and a school that is located just basically right within our community. And we lease a piece of land at the school that we farm and provide them a lot of food too. And the other institution is a Sufi intentional community 
um, and retreat center that we also lease land from and we provide them with CSA shares as well. So the farm has been going for eight years and we're going into our ninth season. Something that's sort of unique about us is we use draft power. So we have two Belgian draft horses that we use with various implements to work the land. So we'll do some plowing and cultivating and compost spreading with them. We do use tractors as well. And our farm is located on different parcels of land that are not connected. So right now we have about three pieces of land that we're growing vegetables on that are all within about two miles of each other. And they're all leased. But yeah, so we all usually come in, we check in, we make a plan for the day because it does vary day by day so much, especially this time of year. So um, like March, April, it's um, kind of hit or miss based on the weather, what we're doing, but it's a lot of preparation, a lot of tying up loose ends from the past season. Today, for example, we just finished fixing a greenhouse where the plastic all came off over the winter and had a lot of rotting wood. So we just had to basically redo the whole greenhouse. But then we're also seeding a bunch. I just seeded all of our tomatoes today and our hot peppers. And we are kind of getting things ready for the CSA. We're doing a lot of communication with customers and um, trying to get people excited and signing up for CSAs. We're doing a lot of planning. Um, we're mapping out all our fields so we know where everything's going and we're making sure that um, no crops going where another, where the same family has been, you know, for the last four years. What else? I feel like this time of year, there's just a lot that goes on. Yeah, I guess something that we did recently was, in addition to what Sarah was saying, renovating the greenhouses, we renovated what was growing in them as well. So we had some crops that were growing over winter, and we've recently transplanted some new crops that we had started in the greenhouse. So uh, spinach, beets, what else is in there? there today, Kale. Yeah, we just transplanted some chicories today, so some escarole and some frise. Um, and I, I guess I should also mention that we are a little bit behind where you guys are at in Bloomington. So we're also kind of just waiting on the soil to be dry and warm enough that we can actually get in there and cultivate it. Because um, right now it's, I, it's actually we've had a few warm days so we could get in. But yeah, we're just like waiting on the right timing before we can actually do anything in the field. And then we'll plant some peas. Mm -hmm. And it's a really tends to be like a wet time of year as well. So it's we don't want to uh, drive a tractor in a wet, soggy field. It can really um, destroy the soil. And so we am, are kind of just waiting to find the right time weather wise and also in terms of our just crop planning for the year to start planting in the fields. And what drew each of you to farm? So this would be my 10th season farming. And so I started when I was 18. It was for me just um, a job after high school. And then I just realized I really liked it. I, and now at this point, I can't really imagine doing anything else because I just like being outside so much. I like the variety. I like eating it, like the products of what I'm creating. Mm -hmm. Just feels good to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this will be, I guess, my fifth season farming. And 
I had done some gardening before, mostly in urban areas, um, but I was really drawn to move away from metropolitan areas and be in a place uh, where I could connect more directly with the land. Definitely the idea of building autonomy drew me to start farming in a more serious way, having the abundance of food, being able to supply others in your community with food. And like Sarah too, I just love being able to be outdoors and feel my body sort of move with the seasons and the whole farm as well and our whole crew. So something I like about our farm is that we do a lot of different sustainable practices, but we've kind of found this like happy marriage between our time and what is also like doing good for the land. So we use the draft horses, but we also um, use the tractors and we use the chisel plow. We use a moldboard plow on occasion when we need to, like that are used with a big New Holland tractor. But we don't do almost any tilling. We're not churning up the soil. So moldboard plowing and chisel plowing, you're like cutting through it, but you're not necessarily like pulverizing it in the way that you would with a tiller. And then after that point, and usually none of the fields like need that intensive of a plowing. So then they just get um, dissed and harrowed and that's with the horses. And then we were just cultivating with an old farmall cub tractor, which is a very tiny, light tractor. Um, so it's all like mostly pretty lightweight on the soil and we're not doing any major soil damage. And then we also use cover crops really regularly and adding a ton of compost. We have good relationships with a couple of different people who have, keep animals or have cow farms. And so we have a lot of manure that we're adding to the soil and then we just have these like beautiful big compost piles too. I'll just add that we do practice some no-till practices and so like Sarah said what I like is we're kind of using a mixed match or like quilt of different types of practices that we're adopting and some pieces of land are more suited to certain practices so we'll use the silage tarps so these big tarps that will roll out over a large piece of land and that's a process called occultation where over the period of about a month they'll kill all everything that's growing beneath them and then you can remove remove them and instead of having to plow or till the soil you can basically plant directly into that we've had some challenges with these practices and so we don't use them for many of our major crops but we'll use them in certain areas and that we have found is working better for us so this year we have a tarp right now over one of our fields called the creek field and that will be a lot of perennial herbs and also our flowers this year and so we have a you pick portion of our farm so that's something um, that's kind of exciting. So when people come to the CSA, they can go into the fields and we have you pick tomatoes, herbs, flowers, 
beans, peas, different things varying at different times of the season. And something that I'm interested in that's a little more woo-woo and like a fun and personal practice for me on the farm and also the other farmers is uh, some biodynamic approaches to farming. And so some of the really basic things that we're doing with that is varying preparations, biodynamic preparations in our compost pile. Uh, a lot of these are just based on different herbs and also mixed with animal sheaths at times. And so it's really a practice for developing compost. And also we use a biodynamic planting calendar. So when we can, which is not always, we'll try to plant or harvest on the appropriate day in the calendar. There's different days related to what's happening in the cosmos. So a leaf day, a root day, a fruit day, and a flower day. And so if we're harvesting roots, for example, we'll try to do that on a root day if we can. But we're also really practical about what is possible and what the weather is doing and all of those things. Can you describe how your CSA works? And then can you also describe the changes that you're seeing coronavirus have on how you have to do both the CSA and your farming practices? Um, so we have two seasons for our CSA. We have a winter CSA and then a summer and fall CSA. For the main season CSA, people can sign up anywhere from February through pretty much like the start date, which is mid-June. So they pay up front or through a payment plan. But either way, we are getting um, a pretty good chunk of money at the beginning of the season. And then that helps us like buy all our seeds and equipment and whatever else we need to do in that kind of like leaner time of year. And then for 20 weeks from June through November, um, the CSA members come once a week and they get a whole variety of produce based on what's available. Um, it works out, I think, to it's like $30 a week is what the price comes down to. But we always load up our CSA members so they end up going home with a lot of vegetables. And something I really appreciate about our farm is that I feel like we do sort of focus on foods that like maybe this is actually all the vegetables that a family will need for a whole week and that just makes me feel good because it feels like mm -hmm. we're actually providing like a pretty big chunk of like people's diets and then especially in the fall when it's like potatoes and squash and carrots and beets and it's like really like hearty sustaining things it's pretty cool and then our winter CSA runs from November. Um, we do the first pickup just before Thanksgiving and then it ends in February and those are just once a month. So this year we switched and we did it every other week so that people could take like smaller amounts more frequently instead of like going home with a giant bag of roots that they had to like figure out where to stuff in their fridges. And that one is more storage crops. So we have onions, garlic, squash, cabbage, carrots, beets, radishes, celeriac, all sorts of wintery things um, and leeks. That's the basic outline of the like regular CSA. And usually it's like this really like fun, like it's two evenings a week and people come and they can like pick out what they want. They can like chat with their friends. Um, sometimes they see us, but a lot of times we're running around in the fields. And this year we're kind of facing the fact that it might have to look pretty differently. And we're still sort of figuring out what that'll be like, whether it's, you know, 
figuring out how to get the doors to shut so that people don't have to like close the door behind them and like touch it. Um, and like where to put hand sanitizers and like, should we pre-pack all our CSAs and not let people choose? Sorry. Presented a lot of questions for us, for sure. I guess I'll just add to that, that so recently we've done some pickups on the farm of vegetables that weren't part of our regular CSA. Uh, but because the farmers markets that we usually attend during this time of year, the winter markets are usually once a month and they go until May when the regular outdoor season market starts. Since we didn't have those market outlets, we started distributing bags of vegetables, um, mixed roots mostly on the farm and something that we had to figure out was how are we going to do this as safe as possible. We ended up coming up with a plan to distribute everything outside of the barn, whereas we would normally do that within the barn. And we pre-packed everything, you know, had a station for hand sanitizer and gloves and um, wipes and made sure that no one had to touch anyone else's food when they were picking up their bags and had wide enough windows of time where people could pick them up that there wouldn't be a lot of overlap between different customers. So that's one thing where we've had to adjust sort of the way that we usually distribute food. And then one maybe, I don't know, silver lining of all of this is that we have seen a huge um, surge in interest in the CSA and in like on-farm pickups, this is like the lean time of year. And we, like I'm constantly getting like texts or we're getting emails to the farm with like neighbors just being like, hey, I know you said you don't have anything, but can we get some greens, nudge, nudge? Like just people are so desperate right now to just have the produce from the farm. And then we've had a lot more CSA signups as well. Can you talk a little bit about the school that you guys work with? Yeah, so we rent land from a private school that's about a mile from us. And they provide us with the land and some equipment. We use a greenhouse that, there that we built for them, but they paid for our labor. And then once a week, some students from the school work with us. Because we're in an area that was um, settled by shakers, they do this practice called hands to work out of um, a shaker phrase, hands to work, hearts to God. So the students like once a week will do different sorts of um, chores and activities around their campus. And one of those options is working on the farm with us. And then our other program with youth, we partner with this organization in uh, a close like mid-sized city, like the closest city basically. And they are really amazing. They give these um, high school students, I think it's a stipend. No, I think it's an hourly wage actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a job. And as part of their job, they come to the farm one day a week. And um, during the school year, they come after school one day a week. And then during the summer, they come for almost a full day. And they help us with anything and everything. They like have picked and threshed beans with us. They've um, transplanted all our cabbage. They've helped us move those giant silage tarps, <laughs> which is amazing when you have like 20 teens like singing a song and hauling this like giant thing around. Um, yeah, that program is really, really amazing. 
Yeah, and the same program also runs a local farmer's market that are run by youth. And so we have a lot of connections with them and uh, we're able to work alongside them at the farmer's market too. And a lot of the students who are all high school students have gone on to do different study agriculture or work at the farmer's market. So it's really exciting to see where they go over the years. On a personal note, so neither of you came from farming families. You both started gardening, right? And that grew into, would you say, like a passion for larger scale food production? I mean, my parents gardened a little bit, but not even much. And it's really funny because both my younger sister and I are farming in this region. Uh, She has multi-species livestock farm and so they raise animals for meat and we're doing we have our vegetable farm with our crew here i have always been passionate about food and anything related to food so i was doing urban gardening and uh working at food pantries and working on different food access issues and I went to school for public health and was working on food security when I lived in more urban settings and so that was sort of the passion that was always driving me and I really wanted to be more connected to the soil and actually growing the food that then moves all around and gets to different communities and different capacities and places where better food goes some places than others and so for me, yeah, it was really wanting to explore the the other side of that, which got me into farming. I've worked on a lot of different scales. So anything from like a micro farm in um, the city to, you know, a few acres. And then this is the largest I've worked at at eight acres, which is still, you know, incredibly small compared to farms, most farms in the United States. But for me, the scale just um, makes sense in my head. I think any if we were up to like 30 acres, it would feel a little too much to me. Like that would be too much tractor time. Um, but as it is, I like that I can spend a few hours on a tractor, but that's not the majority of my time. Like the majority of my time is actually on the ground. And I like that. I like actually like seeing up close the soil and all the plants and having a relationship with them while also producing a lot of food um, and enough to like, feed myself and my community. That feels really important to me. And it also is a scale where I think it forces you to um, be really interdependent, which is cool. It's like Mm -hmm. way too much land for any one person to do or think about. So it really makes us like work together as a team and work together with our neighbors. I'm curious if either of you have a favorite crop that you grow, something that might be like underrated or something that you just find particularly satisfying, either to plant, harvest, or eat. 
I guess one of my favorite crops or a crop that I look forward to because it's a fall crop. So I'm basically just waiting for it all year long and fall is just the perfect time to start eating it for some reason is radicchio. I think it's an underloved <laughs> crop and I mostly eat it raw, but also cooked. It's really delicious with balsamic vinegar. It's great. Bright purple, if you don't know it, and really, really bitter tasting as well, which is why maybe some people don't love it, but I think you can prepare it in so many different ways. It's actually quite versatile, but that's something that I'm always just pumped about when we have our first radicchio harvest. As far as like the whole like process of mm. it, I really enjoy garlic because it ties together the whole season. There's like really distinct activities that happen with garlic. You have the planting in October, picking off, you have, to, you have to mulch it and then you have to pick all the scapes off in summer and then you all harvest it together and all the like processing and saving the seed. I like that it's something that we do save the seed for mm -hmm. um, and it is such a community activity because all of those undertakings are pretty large. Um, and then I cook it in like everything I eat basically. Yeah, it's basically the crop, I love garlic too, but it's basically the crop that we're eating in one form or another all year round, which is really beautiful and amazing. So this time of year, we're eating the very last of our stored garlic and the new garlic is just starting to pop up and we'll harvest little bits and eat green garlic. Um, so that's before it's harvested and, and cured. And then the next step will be harvesting and picking the scapes of it. So we're basically always eating garlic. And we have a garlic harvest party every year at the end of garlic harvest all the crew members and community members we try to get together and make dishes with excessive amounts of garlic in them so like any dish that already has garlic just multiply that by 10 and we'll all eat a million different dishes with tons of garlic and it's really fun and smelly I feel like what is happening in terms of the COVID crisis, and we're seeing this all across the world right now, I'm sure, is some of the issues related to food insecurity are becoming more apparent, but also the role of local producers and local supply chains and, uh, and economies are also being recognized at the same time as valuable. You know, of course, seeing farm workers as essential workers and, you know, a lot of, of farm workers, as farm workers, we don't even have rights as under the National Labor Relations Act or also in many states, it varies whether 
farm workers even have the right to one day off in a week or have any collective bargaining power, these sorts of things. And so um, I feel like there are, the media is paying more attention to this. People in cities or who are further away from farms are, are seeing this and starting to talk about it, which has been really interesting. In our community, um, some of the projects that have focused more on local food and local economies are really starting to shine during this time. For example, there is a grocery store that's pretty new. It started in Hudson. It's, it's run as a nonprofit right now because it has a mission to serve low-income communities and has a fair pricing system. You can buy food with three tiers of pricing, so the upper tier, um, a middle tier, and a lower tier, and you can select which tier you fit into based on your income and household income. And so they are doing really well right now during this crisis I think because they also prioritize sourcing from a lot of local producers and farms. And I think we're seeing this in different parts of the county as well, where stores that have local supply chains are able to keep those up and keep those going. Whereas bigger grocery store chains that are sourcing from so much further away are are probably having more difficulties in their supply chain. But of course, you know, with the loss of jobs and income, a lot of people are hungry and need food. Locally, we're involved in supporting a community outreach program to help with grocery shopping and picking up prescriptions for folks who need it. And we've raised money to subsidize the cost of groceries because many people have expressed the toll that that is taking on them right now if you know you lose your job or have reduced income during this time it's pretty scary so something i find really like motivating for me is that you know everybody eats everyone needs to eat but once you get past that fact you can ask a million questions about that food like who gets to eat what and why who is farming and why where are the farms what's in a grocery store in a certain area and why. And once you start asking those whys, um, at least for me, that process really was a big part of my political education. And the solution is definitely not just local food or like fetishizing local food or producers. The answer to those questions is definitely a way broader shift than food itself touches. But I do think that food and farming are really powerful tools within that bigger fight and also just completely necessary because that initial fact that we all need to eat. And my hope is that by participating in this process that in my bones I just love doing while also grappling with those larger questions of who is buying this food, who gets to buy this food, if it's going to a nonprofit, where is that grant money coming from? Like all of those larger questions are always in the back of my mind or in the forefront while I'm still doing this activity that I love. And I think it definitely still feels like we're gaining power through farming and through more of that role as a producer being within the hands of 
many people and not necessarily just a few corporations or a few like older white guys who are owned by those corporations basically. I guess I'm trying to say that it feels like part of a bigger fight and it's one aspect of that. Up next, we speak with a grocery store manager who's based in Connecticut. He wishes to remain anonymous, and you'll hear why. So we'll say that the grocery store chain primarily serves low-income neighborhoods in areas around the United States. He describes the impact that the ongoing coronavirus pandemic has had on both the market he manages and the employees who work there. He also participates in food-based mutual aid efforts in his town, using his workplace as a resource for others in the community, despite the price gouging on products that his store's management took part in. Here he is. I am a retail store manager for a low-end grocery store. I'm in charge of running the store. It's been a disaster to say the least. The company already runs on the bare minimum, in a sense where the bleed you dry system, they try to milk as much labor out of you as possible. So already, the logistics of it have now become a nightmare in the sense that a massive increase in demand, my store in particular saw in that first week, sales increase of I think, um, and that really carried through for six weeks, um, anywhere from like a hundred to anywhere from like 80 to 120%, um, which has just made the availability out of food in particular meat really scarce. So we started noticing by the end of the second week, when looking around, uh, mid to late February, massive meat shortages, primarily with chicken a lot of the household products. So as people are scrambling to buy like, you know, the typical things you've seen across the country, toilet paper, cleaning supplies, we've really dealt with a long-term out of stock situation with a lot of situations um, and those items and really still trying to recover from that. Things have now kind of plateaued in that sense to try to return to that normalcy and even seeing within that aspect a really disgusting capitalist kind of like price gouging and trying to <laughs> trying to maneuver in a way that's like, oh, you know, we don't have, you know, there's such a high demand that we have to increase the prices. So for example, 30 packs of eggs in my store in particular, $1.89, that went in as high as $6.99. Same thing with like meat. We saw uh, red meat shortages to the point where like ground beef was usually around the like 12 1295 range that went as high as 2499 and the reason i mention this is because the the area that i work in is extremely impoverished a lot of people coming in from like the new haven area of connecticut to flock to waterbury because of the gentrification process and historically the town really neglecting um any kind of support whether it be on the educational side a lot of people in the area rely heavily on food stamps and other welfare programs. So the grocery stores, not just mine, but in the area, have taken a really huge toll as that's their 
only means of income, especially with people uh, dislocated and taken out of work. Just a huge strain on food supply and really on like workers, uh, like my coworkers' health and well-being as we try to navigate <laughs> a massive uptick in uh, busyness and like demand and also corporate being unwilling to supply us with any kind of like resources, whether it be hours, um, an ability to bring in more, more people, or even some like protective equipment, really being kind of like slow on the ball and moving towards that, providing masks, providing gloves, a lot of stores in the area, like two weeks to, prior to us getting it, like shields and like protective face masks, two weeks behind, which really, unfortunately, in an area where it was affected most on the shoreline with um, like the Fairfield County area, uh, border, bordering New York, which has been the epicenter of like this COVID epidemic, right? So most of the shoreline has been affected because of proximity, the heaviest um, and the worst. But Waterbury per capita, uh, where I work, has hit has gotten hit the worst, um, apart from like areas like New Haven, which is like really densely populated uh, city area. So really like a unfortunate, terrible, perfect storm of low income, food shortages, and the corona, of course, hitting hitting harder in areas where you know resources are limited. So we've seen a really unfortunate, perfect storm of all that coming together. That's the really dark side to this whole situation is that Corporate response to everything has been very superficial um, at best, basically trying to appease to PR nightmare. And by that I mean, so we didn't, we had like bare minimum supplies. We had gloves already on hand, uh, but we didn't have masks. And to that, to speak to that, it was, I believe, like two and a half to three weeks before we actually started getting. Uh, mass sent into us. Um, I'm really grateful that my partner crafted up masks for everyone in my store. So that way we did have some protection in the meantime until corporate <laughs> actually jumped on the ball and like did something to help protect us. Um, and that's a microcosm of what's happened, right? So no masks, no gloves, uh, jumping on like having some kind of like divider or barrier between us and the customers giving us more help to do more cleaning. So they sent out new protocols and SOPs detailing how to like keep the store clean. So that would involve wiping down areas uh, like the, the shopping cart handles at least twice a day, which in my opinion wasn't enough, but also uh, they weren't supplying us with the resources, mainly hours and manpower to be able to get those things done, especially considering we were doing twice as much business. So they did come out with SOPs detailing stricter cleaning of high traffic areas, shopping carts, keeping distances, social, like trying to enact social distancing rules of six feet, you know, keeping two, two carts apart, as they called it. But the really terrible end of that is there's no real motivation to execute that from a corporate end. So they just dropped this down basically to what it felt like to appease to if we were to get audited in a sense, right? So 
if anyone were come down and like, oh, are you social distancing? You know, we're allowing Connecticut Connecticut businesses shut down back, I believe, in early March. I'm forgetting the date exactly, but um, shut it down to only essential uh, businesses. So grocery stores, pharmacies, hospitals, auto shops, uh, but with in- increasingly uh, more stringent uh, rules. So our governor, I believe, mid-May enacted that uh, anybody going into stores had to wear a face mask, for example. And to speak to something like that in particular, we had a very interesting, I I dealt with a very interesting thing in particular with a woman who came in and already screamed at one of my coworkers for having been asked to put a mask on. She proceeded to go on with her shopping. I politely came up to her and confronted her. I said, hey, you know, there's an executive order saying that we need to Everyone that comes in the store needs to wear masks, including ourselves, you know, and it's for our safety, for your safety. You know, we're coming in contact with so many, a thousand people a day on average, right? Immediately started cursing, throwing a fit, literally took all the food in her cart, threw it at me, threw it around the store, and stormed out. The only reason I bring this up is because the person that's in charge of our district, of a group of stores in Connecticut, got wind of this, they've complained, and the response, our corporate response was, this is not to happen again in terms of us trying to kind of like keep keep the social distancing and like safety of our customers and ourselves uh, at high priority. Um, the response was basically, don't ever let this happen again. Uh, you are not to refuse anybody. If they don't want to wear a mask, they don't have to do that. People are going to be held accountable if you try to do anything otherwise. And that was really indicative of how they, they took this approach. Same thing happened when Connecticut, so this wasn't mandated, but a lot of stores in the area, grocery stores in particular, enacted like more, like more uh, conscious COVID rules, like took it a little next step, right? So the first hour of the day from like anywhere from like seven to eight, eight to nine, stores would be open just to like immunocompromised people and like the elderly. Most stores enacted those policies. We jumped on that a couple days after everybody else did. And again, with that lack of execution and lack of resources where they said, oh, you know, have someone make sure that, you know, only the elderly are coming in from like eight to nine. Only, again, without any of those resources, but more importantly, I personally got into it with my district manager who sent out as we got this. So corporate sent out a little computer module to explain, you know, this is how you should take, this is how you should approach this COVID pandemic. And in particular with this policy, you know, enforcing that, again, seniors and disabled immunocompromised people only come in. And my district manager sent that to us and immediately said, don't turn anyone away. Let anybody shop. He didn't say it was just for show, but inferring on his language, basically saying, you know, just just keep doing what you're doing. This is just to try to appease people. And I, I did call it out. I, I actually went up the ladder to confront that with corporate. and they took a very laissez-faire approach to it by being like, oh, thank you so much for reaching out. We'll speak to your district manager to, to clarify. Because um, I basically said in this email, you know, I don't think this policy is, I don't think the interpretation of this policy is, is accurate. Um, the whole point is to protect people from getting sick and dying, um, both in-store and my, my crew and, you know, the general public. And I think this goes against that. To which his response was, I got pulled into the office for two hours, got reamed, cursed out, and told that we don't want a public uh, public relations nightmare, which I had to try to explain to him would be the opposite if we just try to play this off as, you know, nonchalant, oh, 
just doing business as usual. So a lot of a lot of corporate response that was basically profits over people, which anybody working in retail knows that the second they walk in, unfortunately. Mostly a lot of a lot of that typical capitalist uh, approach. What happened? Did anyone end up getting sick, or like how was that dealt with if someone did start to feel sick? I'm, I'm really glad you asked that. This is this is something that we've been struggling with. It as it slowed down, it's gotten a little bit better. But in the early runnings, of course, there was a lot of uncertainty. Right? How bad was this going to get? We were knew we knew it was bad. We didn't know how bad it was going to get. We're on the front lines. We didn't know how we were going to get affected by it. There's a lot of panic amongst virtually everybody that I worked with, or I work with rather, in terms of, you know, what's going to happen to us? Is there going to be, is there going to be anything that really helps us out in this case? You know, not just like PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, but also what if we do get sick? So I started launching out emails to corporate to try to figure out what, what that might entail. You know, are people going to get sick time? Can they use it? Again, slow to response. They got back to me a week later and came out with an SOP in terms of, oh, you know, that you can use your vacation time for up to two weeks and that will cover your time out. Blank forbid you should get sick. And then after that, you're on your own. And unfortunately, that was like the overwhelming response, which just drove the panic in, in my store and in other stores, talking to the other stores in the uh, region, just through the roof. The unfortunate catch-22 my store being in a low income area is a lot of the a lot of my coworkers are in these in in these low income neighborhoods and are using this really small paycheck to really get by right so caught in a really terrible spot between a rock and a hard place of do i keep going to work and risk my health and risk my family you know lots of people that have elderly family at home you know mothers and fathers that are in their like 60s 70s 80s children as young as you know one or two years old and living with extended families at you know at a necessity to try to get by so i had people like we talked about this on a daily basis the panic you know of are we going to be safe am i putting my family in danger but also i need a paycheck so i kind of don't have a choice those concerns were brought up um, to higher management and basically just not only ignored but in a way that was like if they don't want to work we'll basically find someone else that will um because this is a great opportunity to take advantage of working more you know that was their approach um this is a great opportunity yeah things are bad but you have a you're really you should be really thankful that you have this opportunity to work when a lot of people aren't working so again a really gross twisting of uh what was happening and again not offering any kind of real support you know SOPs that the SOP that came out in particular, you know, in response to if someone gets sick. Um, and to that, thankfully, no one in my store to date, um, so very thankful and grateful that no one's gotten sick. Not from COVID. We've had some people kind of get sick in terms of like a burnout and rundown situation. I've had several people not return to work because they didn't feel safe. And other people that were working two or three jobs and having their other stores, uh, like dollar stores, enact <laughs> safer practices and like really jump on the ball a little bit sooner and a little bit better and a little bit more effectively. And then deciding not to work at our store anymore because we were so behind. Um, and really the lack of empathy and compassion was pretty palpable um, and has been palpable. 
So unfortunately, dealing with a lot of panic, a lot of anxiety, a lot of burnout. Unfortunately, the general public's response to what's happened has overall not been great. You know, a lot of we've received a lot of abuse from people, um, whether it's people screaming at us during the first three or four weeks. I was breaking up fights of mostly customers trying to fight my staff and coworkers. Staff doesn't feel right. Uh, that feels playing into that corporate language, but customers coming in and like literally trying to have fist fights with peers content warning involving like drugs and abuse, but customers coming in and threatening my peers with dirty needles because they didn't want to put on a mask or they needed to get in right now and we didn't have alcohol and they thought that we were or like hand sanitizer. They thought that we were keeping it from them. A lot of unrest really on all phases of this, which just really drove this panic and anxiety and depression and uneasiness with everybody that I work with, which I can thankfully say has gotten better. But really the first six weeks were pretty dreadful, dreadful, chaotic experience. Thinking through this and what you've seen in your work at the grocery store, can you kind of talk about the mutual aid projects that you're working on and maybe how those two things might reflect on each other? Yes. And this is, this has been one of the bright sides to this whole thing is for starters, Again, being in low low income areas, with the pandemic affecting school, Connecticut closed schools, I believe it was early March. So now the burden of financial strain, especially sense of providing food for your for your kids and family, a lot of these families, especially in my town uh, where I work, they rely on school for the lunches, right? So with that, there's a huge gap trying to be filled by the already struggling now out of work that don't have these resources. Uh, I'm really thankful that one group in particular, the Waterbury Mutual Aid Group, absolutely amazing work for the past couple, really dating back since their inception, but uh, in particular, uh, starting off in like February, they worked with local organizations, get food, processing it, particular, but also not limited to families that were now trying to support their kids that were out of school. I believe I might be a little bit off on the numbers are on a weekly basis providing food um, meals to a thousand families in the area by distrib- procuring distribution, like sifting through delivering. I've been fortunate enough to kind of help in that in the in a way that because I work in produce, we have a lot of stuff that gets like spoiled out. There's a concept in retail where, and this is especially true for produce, where there's this really, really awful disguise in the sense that are still very safe and consumable, just get thrown out because they're not aesthetically, aesthetically appealing.
So to speak that onto, onto that more, there's a concept in produce that's called ugly produce, which basically is produce that's perfect to eat, but it doesn't look great. So people aren't as incentivized to come in. And again, this all this all funnels back into the capitalist mindset of you know maximizing profits, which it's funny because it's ironic that getting into it later, um, it's illuminating that that actually goes against what the idea is, but they've convinced themselves otherwise. So this, this concept of ugly produce, right? Produce that looks just doesn't look as appealing, but it's perfectly safe to eat. We are, the protocol is to take it out. We scan it out. Since I've been working, working there, I've been diligent about working with local food banks, churches, and now the mutual aid groups to try to make sure that this non-spoiled food is distributed and like taken advantage of because it's perfectly fine to backtrack a little bit sorry with how the the concept that they they think from like a marketing and profit driven standpoint is that people come in the first thing they see is produce that's something that most people come in for if they see that it doesn't look that great they're going to go to another store so the idea is only put out stuff that looks absolutely amazing which in turn creates a massive amount of waste and a massive amount of immoral unnecessary waste right which at the end of the day we have to document everything that we throw out so although we might be getting more sales at the end of the day at the end of the week at the end of the month for for produce we are throwing out massive a massive amount more uh, because of this process but they justify that in a way that doesn't make sense but of way saying, oh, well, you know, sales increased, you know, 10%. And yes, your, your waste or discards increased 20%, but it offsets because we're getting more customers that are coming in to buy other stuff. You know, they're buying more groceries now. So they find a way to justify it in terms of a profit, in terms of driving profits. I've been really fortunate to try to maximize the best of a bad situation, right? And I'm probably going to speak too much on this end. So I'm going to try to keep it kind of vague, but essentially I've been taking that protocol to the max. So anything that has any kind of slight blemish, I instruct my team and myself to put aside and then to reach out to the various people in the area, organizations in the area, mutual aid groups, uh, local churches, local food banks, to call them immediately and be like, look, we have a surplus of food because this is how uh, they they technically want us to approach the food supply. So in a way, it's actually been helpful in a non-capitalist way, which has been amazing. So taking food that's otherwise perfectly fine and being able to funnel it right into the community at no cost to them. Taking that steps further where we have protocols to like mark things down. Uh, so if it's getting bad or, you know, if it's something that's close to being out of code like, or, or expiring, we reduce the price a little bit because they're so they're because corporate decides when they want to tune in and drive home like too many discards. They also try to incentivize us marking stuff down. So I've been thankful to also take advantage on that end where it's like a four dollar item is now 50 cents. They want it gone. I'm happy to oblige. So not only supplying food to the community at no cost, but supplying food to the community at a drastically reduced cost, which has been a really beautiful end to that. I've been fortunate enough to work with them to also like help with food deliveries in a minimal way, because unfortunately I do work anywhere from like 60 to 80 hours a week, especially with the COVID pandemic, which gets back to, you know, not having the resources available to kind of like sustain this uptick in business, but to stick true to more of that, that food end and the, the, the mutual aid portion of it is 
there has been a beautiful shining light in the situation that's allowed us to provide more food to the community at no cost by taking advantage of loopholes of protocols that are in place to try to maximize profits. And I can say that it's like really trying to like hone in on that opportunity. So that's been a really beautiful thing. This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we're going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world, to the servers and those being served, to the history of food in our country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org and we will be in touch. This episode's only the beginning. In upcoming segments of Partisan Gardens, stay tuned to hear about the history of the pawpaw, a profile of Carbondale, Illinois, and their autonomous food growing practices, how the food service industry deals with the coronavirus, and how food scarcity impacts our local food banks and community. Stay tuned. <laughs>